Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Okay, it's Tuesday the 14th of November. A little bit late getting this out. It's uh, Tuesday evening, CET, which is where I am. But we are here, absolutely. We did a little bonus pod yesterday to give you a little taster of what it's like to be a podcast supporter. Because of course, we are currently in the midst of a 2023 Not A Diving Podcast pledge drive. Thanks to all of you who have signed up so far. We are nowhere near the target that we had. We're a week in though, so we're only halfway through. I've got to say that UK listeners, you make up 80%, at least 80% of the actual audience for this show, but less than 5% of the supporters. You are letting yourselves down there. So if you're a UK listener, it's time, I think, if you're, you know, if you're a regular listener, if you're tuning in every week, maybe it's something you should think about. Because yeah, the Brits are apparently pretty tight. I never really dug into those figures before, but yeah, it's pretty shocking. And actually, it kind of tallies with the Bandcamp figures for supporters, extra supporters, the people who give extra money when they buy stuff on Bandcamp that we talked about on the show a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Wow. Brits are tight. Who would have thought? But... It's never too late to change your ways, British people. So um, yeah, scubaofficial.io slash support. Remember, you get the Musicality t-shirt if you sign up on Patreon, the Musicality tier, which is a great t-shirt, I have to say. I'm going to post a few pics of it actually tomorrow. And also, you know, just the knowledge in addition to the other stuff you get as part of the Patreon tiers, the knowledge that you're supporting one of the best, if not the best music podcast out there, right? That's what I think. And you know you, you know you agree with me. <laughs> oh dear. Um, it's Tuesday night and I've had a glass of wine, but that's fine because 
the guts of today's show was recorded last week and it's with Adrian Sherwood. Great to have an absolute legend, an unambiguous legend on the show. He's a legend of UK dub. I think he's a legend of dub music generally. But he's also worked with people like Ministry, Nine Inch Nails and Blur amongst lots of others. So the very last question actually in the conversation today is informed by one of those people and it comes slightly out of the blue if you're not aware of his uh, work with (laughs) said artist. It was a little bit truncated, the conversation. He had to run off at the end and it wasn't quite as long as I wanted it to be, but it's really great nonetheless and I think you're going to enjoy it. So yeah, Adrian Sherwood. Right, before we get started on that, a reminder about the Pledge Drive, scubaofficial.io slash support. If you can't do that, if you can't, if you genuinely can't afford it, then yeah, okay, I accept that. Follow the show wherever you listen to this podcast. Hit the follow button, hit the review button, hit the five-star review button and leave a review, a gushing review. That would be nice. And it would also help the show. You could also follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show, it's that playlist. And join us on the Discord if you want to complain about me doing too much of a hard sell uh, with regards to direct donations, direct support for the show. You can leave a direct donation as well, by the way, not just Patreon. But if you want to complain about that, then hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord is the place to do it. We'd love to see you there regardless of what you have to say, almost regardless of what you have to say. So yeah, okay, without further delay, here is Adrian Sherwood. Adrian Sherwood, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you, Scuba. Very nice to to be here. Um, yeah, yeah, nice one. Please call me Paul, by the way. Paul. I'm just like, yeah, that's much better. Should we start um, again? Do you want to start again? No, no, no. No, that's fine. That's fine. Just for, I, I'm just eternally embarrassed by that DJ name, to be honest, that I've been lumbered with for 20 years. So, oh, uh, uh, <laughs> one of those ones. Anyway, yeah, great to be finally doing this. I wanted to kick off by asking you, well, I had a conversation on the on the show last week which is not typical, actually, but we talked a lot about new developments in music tech and how it's changed in the last couple of decades. And I wanted to ask you how you make music now, today, because obviously you've been, uh, you've seen the whole kind of arc, right, since the 70s or so of the methods of making music. So how do you, how do, you do it these days? Well, if um, it, the, 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 there's the great things from the past that you have to, um, well, if you don't have to, but if you know them, that's great. And you've got things happening at the moment that are just mind-blowing. So I try to... Um, I can't operate all the computers, I've got to be honest. I'm not... I'm an old analogue person, so I have to do analogue mixing, which is what I love. But we do a lot of things in the box, what they call in the box, in the computer, which is what every, you know, 95% of producers do, I think, in their bedrooms or in their studio setups anyway. Uh, but what, what I would tend to do is, if I've... Um, got a band to record I would want to go into a really good old school studio to record it properly you know using um, you know all the, all the good mics everything and uh, make sure I'm in a good room and after that we, we go we go like probably everybody else and work inside the computer um, nudging things treating things then overdubbing at our place with using good you know, good amps, um, vintage uh, EQs, vintage spring reverbs, vintage stuff, and then carry on that way. And then in the final thing, I'll be using whatever really excites me at the moment 
in the final mix. So I'm uh, um, I'm not all analog, you know, with tape because it's just too expensive to, to to work on. But the 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 days of tape are, are a happy memory for me, a fond memory, and also a very creative one. You know, using the using tape creatively was great. But now, you know, with what's got what you can do now, it's it's mind blowing. There's some brilliant things happening. Yeah, I mean, quite a lot of the focus of uh, music tech development in the last 10, 15 years has been trying to recreate those classic analog sounds. Like there's you know, the emulation of consoles and of stuff like you know, the classic effects, like, yeah, like spring reverb and all that kind of stuff. How do you feel about that stuff? And have you, I mean, is it is it a decent um, alternative to using the real thing? Yeah, definitely is, definitely. Uh, it, 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 uh, Honest, I've got so many brilliant um, plugins that, are, that we don't even, you know, haven't even got around to checking. Is that well, we have kind of, but there's so many that that are, are stunning. You know, the new the new Lexicon plugin um, that plugins they, they they sound like the the, the, the vintage stuff. The the, um, the there's, there's there's countless wonderful things, and but but you know, to me, nothing replaces like the still proper physical outboard because you actually touch it and interact with it and bash it while you're working I, but yeah hang on, I'm trying to answer the question yeah the, 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 the replacements are stunning but it's like any tool if you've if you're working with a vintage drum machine or a vintage synth and you use it well um, it's not it's, it's the same thing with what what is your weapon your, you know your sonic weaponry so to speak that you use to attack your mix with you know make it make it pulse and breathe. Mm. Yeah. So one of the things that came out of the, yeah, my conversation last week was about really about workflow and how important it is to to be comfortable in what you're doing and you know the how useful it can be to use plugins versus outboard stuff but also in reverse too. So I mean I've certainly had uh, phases in this year where I felt much more comfortable, like like you say, having my hands on something. But then sometimes I've found that it doesn't necessarily work with how my kind of music making brain works. By the sound of things, you're very much uh, a kind of hands on knobs <laughs> kind of a guy. Yeah, but well, I've got a, a wonderful engineer. I work with Matt Smith, who's um, been my engineer for the last few years, so, who's absolutely brilliant. And you end up like bouncing off each other. You know, you're, it's really good. So. We, we've got a set of um, go-to um, plugins and effects that we use throughout the you know when we're making rhythms, build you know building tracks as I as I've acquired the the words for the Jamaican things, build a rhythm, let's make a track, and it is like that. You're always like building a house, aren't you? And then um, deconstructing it, and then adding a new roof to it or a cellar. It's like uh, we, we will go to certain uh, things that I like. I'm at that one that does this, that one that does that, you know, you'll know exactly what I mean. And then we'll go to, uh, and, and I, I think continuity in the production is really good. So I've got um, some vintage things that I love and always use. And then we've also got some plugins that we love, you know, for the recent ones that we just, you know, that we've come across recently. And we tend to go through periods of using um, a set of sounds and it does give the productions a continuity as well rather than just randomly using any old thing and then what I love to do is I like to plug one into another so take a reverb plug it into a phaser then plug it into a parametric 
and then get movement in the sound to make it breathe. And that might be a combination of the plug-in with the, the, the desk, putting up a channel on the desk and putting it through uh, a cinema engineering EQ or a Langevin or something, or even, a, even just a desk EQ sweeping it, and then plugging the output of that into um, you know, a tape delay or a digital delay. Just, I'm just using two or three things and plugging them into each other. Is this kind of process how you made the Creation Rebel album that just came out? Well, the Creation Rebel album was um, we, we uh, decided to, to embark on it during lockdown, as we did quite a few other things. And lockdown proved such a brilliant period for a lot of uh, artists because you suddenly had this almost tranquil vibe around. Everyone, everything was like still almost. So, right, let's embark on this. Then it was a matter of getting into a studio in London. Uh, the lads went into a studio in Harlesden and laid down a few rhythms. Um, I had already had a few things here that I'd been working on. I got Charlie to overdub the drums. So it was a, a matter of getting good micro, you know, decent microphones in London. It wasn't like the most expensive studio, but a Stingray studio, a good, a good studio. Uh, then down at mine, we've got some great mics and things here doing the same thing. And back and forth, doing all the processes I just described. So that album, you know, it's um and then then we obviously augmented it. We had Gaudi. Gaudi added a bit of sparkle with some melody bits on on two or three tunes and some other great guest players as well. And it's not overproduced it's not overproduced except for maybe um put my track push me pull you <laughs> the 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 um no, that's more like it, rather. I'm, I'm confusing it with Head Charge. That's more like it track. You know, that's um, probably one of the more uh, uh, produced dub tunes. But it's, um, you know, it's a solid piece of work. It's reflecting where everybody's at, really, that album. Yeah, I was just going to say, I was listening to it this morning. And yeah, it sounds great. So, I mean, is it difficult to find good studio space these days? Because obviously that's one of the things that's happened in the last 20 years is there's been a real decline of quite-unquote proper studios well, you're going to have to save up. If you're a band, you know, you don't go into some um, second-rate place and hire or do it in a rehearsal room or anything. It, your best investment is just go to one of the big studios and say, look, we're, you know, we're a little band. We'd really dream of playing in here. When you've got a dead day or something, could we perhaps come in here with one of your assistants and get the studio at half price or something? We'll pay you cash, you know. Or you know, you, all the studios are approachable because they do get a cancellation or they've got a dead day. Go in, approach, you know, one of the best studios, speak to the studio manager, you know, be polite to, to he or her and try and um, get the best studio because that investment, when you get back to your, your studio or your front room or wherever you're working, you've suddenly got something that's sparkling and sounds... Um, don't like said, it sounds expensive. It sounds like real, you know. The Croatian Rebel album we recorded in actually, you know, a cheap, you know, relatively reasonably priced studio, but one that was, you know, if anyone wants to record reggae, somewhere like Stingray, or if you want one of you know, the best studios, you, you know, Mike Palanconi, Prince Fatty, he's opened a new studio in South London. There are new ones opening. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to work with, you know, Mike, probably the best uh, engineer for recording drums that there is, you're going to get a great result. So investing in something like going to, you know, Fatty's studio or, or you know, Matt Professor's got a studio and whatever, you just, it, it saves you money in the long run that you've recorded your thing 
properly. And then all the overdubbing, all the work with EQs, the work with plugins or whatever you're doing next, you're working, you're not struggling and fighting to make it sound good. How much of a negative effect, if at all, has the decline of studios had on music that gets released generally, do you think? Mm, well, it's two ways, really. I mean, it's a law of economics, supply and demand. People couldn't afford to maintain those studios. A lot of people I know, like Nigel Frieda, who owned the Matrix group of studios, you know, he was lucky to, to have a brother like John Frieda, who was very successful. And between them, they, they'd bought the freeholds. They loved the studio. He loved the studio business. He's a really good man, actually, Nigel. But um, they've ended up that the real estate value of the studio was so great. You know, one of the studios, I think the Holborn one, which they didn't actually own the building, is like a blooming yoga studio now. And, you know, and... Uh, the, the, the others are probably multi-million pound flats. So studios become, have become less and less a um, an attractive thing for either the owner of the studio or the owner of the building. And uh, but but there are a lot of studios. And but most folk now they, they I reckon like I said, ninety five percent of people probably don't even need a studio anymore. They're making everything digitally and. It, it also, that's why a lot of it sounds very samey but there are studios all over uh, but you'd, I, I don't think in the old days you'd think of doing the whole record in a studio from the moment you mic'd up that bass drum till the minute you walked out shaking hands with the engineer or and, and the crew who've, who've worked and helped you or, or strangling them, whatever you might be doing but you know, <laughs> the old days you'd, it'd be the beginning to the end you'd spend in this you know, lovely space or, or whatever now it's a case of get in, get the actual live performance recorded with you know with the players, and then do all the tracking and things elsewhere. It's not needed anymore, and that's because of the technology. It's not uh, in the old days the technology wouldn't allow you to to work in, in in you know in a kind of six foot square room with with no windows, which a lot of folk do now and make great records. You know, from their house. It's uh, no those beautiful studios. I miss the Manor. The Manor in Oxford was my favourite studio. It was residential. We used to stay there. We had it was very creative because you had all the, all of us together for days on end and uh, knocking out you know an album a day kind of thing. You know, it was those days. I, I've got I've got those happy memories. Um, but now, unless you're like a kind of you know successful gigging band, you to indulge yourself doing that. Uh, you know, all the young bands have to use the tactics I, I've described, really. Has something been lost musically, do you think, by the decline of that sort of thing? Well, I think the, 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 the advent of um, the internet and um, all, all the great advancements, you know, allowing people to produce at home... That's the, 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 the only thing I, I've been, I don't, you know, the studio things, studios are still there. There's, there's loads of them around, loads, but, um, you know, they, they're expensive. But you don't, like I said, you don't need them for anything like however many, if you're spending 28 days making an album, you don't spend, you don't need the studio for more than maybe two or three days. Sure. But when you're talking about, you know, going in and hanging out and like, you know, there's a kind of creative uh, back and forth in that process, which I think you don't. Well, I think that side of things is well. It's, it's more difficult to come across. I think now. 
like with yeah, the, with but the, you uh, shouldn't. You know, to be writing in a studio, a whole record in a studio. If you you can do it in your house or in a rehearsal room, you know, or you can do yeah, there's other yeah. ways. I mean, if you've got good ideas, you've got good ideas. It's like thinking you sat there and something's gonna, you know. No, I think the problem, the real thing that gets me is 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 like now in in the old days, those ideas could be slowly nurtured and developed and um could could come along you know from absolutely nowhere from you know from iceland with bjork and kirkle and all those people and mm. then nobody would have known except those who knew and it was word of mouth and now it's microscoped in a split second somebody will film a gig on their phone or somebody will share something and before you know it other producers are microscoping an embryonic idea and it just becomes that, that um, very easily, what's you, sanitised or, or very easily somebody else gets into that. And then when there's a successful formula, people jump onto that formula of, you know, be it with rhythms in Jamaica or, or other, other ideas, you know, and you get lots of, you know, uh, dare I say it, it's like with B-League Ed Sheeran's or something. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry, but, you know, you know it, might, uh, it might be. I don't um, I don't really think that the, the uh, internet has helped the th- things develop very gently anymore. It's all a lot more calculated or more microscoped. That's, that's the problem. Yeah, totally. I mean, that actually leads on to what was going to be my next question anyway, which was, I mean, stepping back and kind of zooming back to the very start of your career, like how was like, how was Dub first imported to the UK? Like, How did, how did Dub become well-known in the UK in the first place? Well, while people use the word Dub, it was version. I mean, version's a much right. more key word to me. So you'd have a, a song that you loved and then you'd hear you know, a DJ or a second DJ or a second singer or an instrumental version of that rhythm. And then if you look back to, um, you know, the late six, you know, 68 time, you know, albums coming like um, Lee Perry, the Kung Fu record and all those things, we're hearing loads of echoes and it's stripped down to just drum and bass and um, funny noises on it and then reverbs and more eccentric versions and then eventually, the um, you know the first few dub records, people you know who were running the record labels. I was I was involved in running record labels from when I was seventeen in seventy five, and you could see there was a little a little market. You know, it wasn't big, but a little market for what you know, smoky bears, people who liked a bit of weed, would um, you could see they're like you know they're really liking albums. Um, like I Tell Dub or King Tubby Meets the Upsetter at the Grassroots of Dub or Lee Perry's uh, Blackboard Jungle and, you know, the Lee Perry Kung Fu record, on and on. And a, um, a lot of people didn't want to, particularly because it had gone from, you know, the really fun records. That, again, Lee was a big part of the, the Rude records and Mischievous records that, you know, is very... And all the skinheads were loving this stuff. And it's suddenly with the uh, Black Pride thing from America, the Black, the Panthers, the Garveyist movement, they started getting um, more and more... Um, it got blacker and blacker, and it got too black for a lot of the reggae fans. You know, the Madness fans, for example, bemoaned this period because they, 
well, they bemoaned the loss of the fun um, reggae from that they that they've been so fond of, and the it became too political. Was that? It became too black. Okay, and the the politics they were very interested in politics, whatever type of politics, but a lot of it was like you know improve self improvement for for black folk and uh, mm-hmm. the rise of you know the Rasta movement. It, they couldn't really relate to it, so the dub. While it didn't satisfy uh, any more uh, than the, the root stuff did, those type of fans, it created a whole new movement where a lot of students, a lot of uh, you know, dub heads emerged that were really into the stuff because it wasn't challenging you with loads of lyrics. Right. Oh, wow. That's that's really interesting. Okay, I, I never thought about it like that, but yeah, that actually makes sense for people who aren't aware of the kind of. I don't know how to describe this. I was going to say racial politics, but I'm not quite sure that's quite right. Just the, the kind of cultural crossover, which meant that skinheads were into reggae. Like, can you just... Uh, yeah, but, but you know, you've got to bear in mind skinheads... Um, skin- it's, not the, it's not the kind of skinheads we necessarily associate no, with no, neo-Nazis. No, no, yeah, no, no, yeah that's, no, no. That's, that's my question. Yeah, so you just describe that. Well, you, you know, society in England, I mean, I could... You know, going back on the social history of England and the oppression of of the people in this country is shocking, you know. They were used as like cannon fodder in one war after another. They were never treated... In England, you've got to bet it's a class war here. It's not... It still is to this day, you know. A lot of these Tories will pretend it's not a class war. But it is an out-and-out class war. Who controlled the land? You know, look at leases on properties and who really owns the land and, you know, what, what, what people were... You know, people come back from the war... And you know, one war after another, and they'd be still living some crap life on a farm in Scotland or something that was owned by some British la- English landlord or something. Owned by the royal family. And yeah, and the royal family. They had no, they had no choice what to do. And um, then you roll it forward. You know, the late forties, a lot of black people start coming in, and this always blaming somebody else. If we've got it now with blaming people coming over on a ship to where I live here in Ramsgate, arriving on the, the beach, you know, like, go back to where you came from kind of attitude. Well, each of those people brought something to this country, which is a country of um, immigrants. There's no indigenous English person or whatever, no such thing. And everyone came here. And when the, the black folk came, they, they, they and the Asian people, they faced, you know, horrible racism. But they, but they, they mixed with a lot of kids on you know council estates in poor areas from Bristol to Cardiff, particularly early on Liverpool, and they, they they mixed and bit by bit a lot of the kids, the skinheads, came from like just um, look, this is me stripped to the bone, raw, you know, raw. It was a raw feeling that um, had. You know, it had many facets to it. There's a good movie that a friend of ours made, World of Skinhead, which is very interesting. And um, it shows it, you know, and a lot of the skins were very, very close with the, the black kids. And yeah. there were black skinheads. And then there was another lot of them who were just horrible, sc- scummy racists. So, uh, but, you know, the worst racist wasn't the skinheads, it was the teddy boys. The Teddy Boys were vehemently racist and horrible. That was my right. memory. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the the kind of image of um, 
Skinner's is, is uh, yeah, it means something different now. To, yeah, it's almost been taken over by more like the horrible Eastern European ones who went that way, you know. And But yep. there were elements of fans of bands like Madness that were, um, unfortunately, and they, I know that the band hate, hated it, you know, that, that were um, very right-wing and Rollins, you know. So there were lots of contradictions. But the, the, the skinhead reggae scene was brilliant. I love those records, the fun, the energy... The, still big fans of the Scar tunes. And that was a golden period for reggae because it produced lots and lots of top 10 hits for the artists. Mm. And then we went into the period that, that um, out of which came, you know, Bob Marley and lots of other great Roots artists that, you know, me and my mates loved. But the dub scene, that, that um, obviously Scar and the, the, the two-tone thing filled a gap for the, the, the fans of the stuff from the 60s. The, you know the happy kind of um, more party flavored reggae, then the um, two time you know the fans of the other stuff started going to the their own version of it, and the, those of us who like the root stuff as well, you know we were getting into some amazing stuff coming from Jamaica and and England as well, and then obviously this this whole new market for for dub which was never really big big big, but it was. Like I said, you know, a lot of smoky bears. You sit at home putting on a couple of instrumental records that were really trippy. It was, uh, I always liked it. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah, right. So did you grow up in London? No, High Wycombe. I was born in London and I moved to firstly Slough when I was two. And then when I was nine, um, my dad had died very early and I'd moved to my mum and her hus uh, my stepfather moved we all moved to High Wycombe. So my formative years were um, it, it were there. And how did you end up working at a label when you were 17? In High Wycombe, there was um, a man who was like, cause my, was like, like a dad to me, uh, Joe Farkerson. Joe um, had been involved with Palmer Records in the 60s and right back to the 60s, Club 67, working with Max Romeo, promoting Wet Dream and loads of other stuff. Palmer... Uh, he, uh, Joe, Joe had a club in, in High Wycombe called the Newlands Club and I started DJing there on my friend Steve and myself on s firstly Saturday afternoons then Saturday and Sunday afternoons um, and then early evenings opening up for people like Emperor Roscoe I did shows with Judge Dredd, Johnny Walker Dave Lee Travis like really weird Radio 1 road shows in the afternoons and I was like yeah, okay. 14. And then when I was 15, I got a little job for Palmer. I went up on the train in my summer holidays. I used to go up there and collect promo records for my DJing as a, as a kid. And then the Newlands, we had a really hot summer and it killed the Newlands club. I mean, it literally went from being primarily a soul club. It wasn't reggae so much. You know, 15% reggae, the bulk of its soul. And suddenly it was like... Um, all the, the soul fans didn't come. And then the reggae fans, unfortunately, didn't drink enough to support the club. <laughs> so <it's laughs> right. like they'd, have, they'd have a spliff and two beers, and that was, their, that was it for the night. So it wasn't a great business for Joe. The club went out, and he started working for Palmer again. And then he, br he brought me in, and we, and we started one of the first ever kind of independent distribu distributors out of the building that eventually became Jetstar. And the same yeah. year as we started that, 
I got my driving license a month after my 17th birthday. And uh, I was driving the length and breadth of Britain, uh, selling labels, records. And then we started our own label. And then one thing after another, that's a whole story of my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've got, I've got a few more questions about this whole period. But had you done any music prior to what you just described about DJing when you were a kid? Like, had you like learned instruments or anything like that? What was your... No, I wasn't very... I wasn't, I was a bit... My tuning wasn't great. I was a bit kind of... I wasn't really... But my mum had been a good singer. My mum, weirdly, was um, going to join the George Mitchell singers, which is really weird, which is like the... Was one of the things they did was the black and white minstrel show. Wow, okay. I know, really, really (laughs) mental. But my mum was a really good singer and... um, my stepfather, although he, I, we weren't close, he, he was always had music playing at the house from, um, you know, a really wide variety of stuff he liked. But he didn't like reggae, which probably made me like it even more. And, um, <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah, and, uh, you know, so there was a musical thing there and um, we always had music at the house and, you know, I, I, I didn't do it. No, I had no particular leanings to actually making music i literally by fault did i become a producer yeah i've i've read your um the interview you did with jd twitch a while back i was reading that this morning and you talk about how uh how the creation Rebel project first started and yeah by the sound things like pretty accidental right well written well no well we started the the distribution company after the yeah. fall of the newlands club and i was at college i wasn't happy and i i left after a year so i was uh I was ready to do something. Joe's like, come on, you know, he knew he could trust me. And he was like, he was like my dad, to be honest. He took me under his wings and if it weren't for him, you know, he, um, I can thank him eternally, you know. And, uh, you know, his, his wife and his sons are like family to me now, like my brothers. So I, um, I, I have to thank Joe for getting me involved. But the... Um, we were distributing records, then we started label licensing tapes. And I kept meeting musicians and producers and and gunmen and people. I didn't know, I thought the gunmen were the producers. <laughs> I, I was really naive and innocent, but I was working with a fellow called Chips Richards who um, had been involved in the music. I'd, I'd actually done a summer working for him at Vulcan, driving the van, Grunation Records, with um, Junior Lincoln and some other people, um, Webster Shrouder and some people who'd, you know, big up, big players from Trojan days, and you know, it, it started. Uh, Junior Lincoln had started the reggae sunsplash. You know, the the thing. It, it, anyway, interesting. You know, interesting, strong people, and I'd had them all. Could took me under their wing a bit, so I was kind of nurtured into it. And then musicians started coming up, and you become friendly with people because they're so lovely. And I thought, oh, I, I had a bit of money, and I thought oh, I'll run a session. And Chips made a phone call to Dennis Bavell for me and said, look, Adrian wants to run a session. Can you engineer it for him? And that's how my friendship with Dennis started and my first venture into, you know, making a record. I literally winged it. I, 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 I you know, hummed the bass lines to the bass player I wanted to do and made my, made my own little designer dub album. It wasn't a band or anything. And... Eventually, <coughs> excuse me. Was, let me let me just ask you: Was that a common thing that people did back then? That kind of approach to making a record? Well, anybody could run a session if they had the money. You know, production meant if you produce it, meant you paid for it and you owned the tapes. 
Yeah. So a lot of people did it. I don't know who did it. I'm guessing a lot of people like Bunny Lee in Jamaica, when he started, he, he just financed everything. Therefore, he was the producer. Um, and he was using whoever to engineer it for him because he wasn't an engineer. Um, you know, that that was that was how people started. I'm not comparing myself to Bunny Lee for a minute, but um, I, I in England, I, I don't think there were... Um, it, it wasn't unusual for people to run a session or for someone who owned, you know, a hairdressing business to finance a recording or someone else to. But I just kind of went into it. And my first one, the first record, did did okay. John Peel really championed it. And uh, saying it was the best dub record ever made in England. I'm thinking, Jesus, that's our record. And like, this is easy. I'm just doing what I like, you know. <laughs> and... Um, you know, it was. It's never. You know, it wasn't not the biggest selling record on earth, but it it it, it got got um got me started, and then I uh, I started meeting all these wonderful people, like you know, the Mark Stewarts and non reggae people, and I just kept recording. Whenever I had the money, I'd run a session, or and then then I got to a point where I'd run up bills of about ten grand with a couple of studios. Bob Zimbler at Berry Street and another another place, and I was literally making records, taking really bad advances off the likes of Blooming Cherry Red Records, who were giving me less money than it cost me to make the things, but just to keep things ticking over, thinking oh, I'll crack it, I'll crack it, you know. And, I, and by then I had the bug, and I was just yeah. I mean, that's let me let me ask you a question about that. Like, did you have a clear idea during that period? about what, what success meant or were you just making tunes? Oh, success meant paying off my debts. I had a three, right, and, a, right. I had a, I had a three and a half grand overdraft secured against my mum's house. <laughs> right, okay. And yeah, that'll concentrate was, the mind, right? And I think at the, at the time the house was worth about 15 grand. That's how <laughs> much that was. So it certainly focused the mind. I was just right. I've got to get, I've got to, whatever I do to get clear of these debts and keep going. Because I, I actually love doing it, but yeah. at the same time, I didn't want to, you know, cause havoc from, from a ma, you know. So this is like early 80s period. Is that, is that where we are roughly? Or is yeah. it early? No, this is, this is still, this is, this, well, yeah, well, by now, early, yeah, yeah, well, you could say, yeah, by now, early 80s, yeah. Yeah. So the On You Sound label, which is, which is still going, which is what you released the the recent the recent record on? That started in seventy nine, right? No, that started right at the end of eighty into eighty one. Okay. I think the first okay. seven inch was at the end of eighty. I think, or maybe it was, yeah. And then the beginning of eighty one, we started putting out New Age Steppers album, the first albums. And what was the what was the motivation there? Was it, were you just like really deep in the music and just wanted to be involved? And, and running a label was just something you did people did then well like, I'd, the... I'd, I'd nearly gone I'd, al I'd always I'd always been told a very good trick by Chips Ch he said to me look if you wanted to try and do business you've got to get a catalogue because if you're going to go now and I'd already I'd been an early distributor before you know uh, Palmer Jetstar took the idea off Joe and me and put it in the same building that created Jetstar we had down the road there was Mojo, who was Rodigan's friend and uh, a nice guy, Mo, Mo Claridge. And then there was um, Kasner. He had what was Kasner's company called? Uh, I'd come back to him in a minute. Another distribution company, you know. And he said, look, if anyone wants to deal with you or EMI or any of these people, 
if you want to go for their distribution, which was national distribution at the time, which they didn't really want to touch any of the, you know, ghetto reggae people. They want a catalogue. They don't want to take one tune off you. They might license the tune and then contract you for an album or something if you're an artist. But um, they were interested in catalogue. So I tried with Hit Run to get the catalogue going as quick as I could in the two years it lived. Um, we did about 10 albums and about 20, I don't even know how many, I can't even remember, eight albums or something, seven, six, eight albums. Um, my memory's a bit shot and then loads of 12 inches. I was trying to get a catalogue together. Then when I started on you, it was like, right, how do I get to having three or four titles so that Rough Trade or anybody would want to deal with me? That's what I was thinking about. And then he was saying, oh, you were you, the punky reggae party, did all this. He was just, no, I was just literally meeting people I really liked. And then there were big influences on me, like Mark Stewart. And at the same time, trying to get a few titles so I could do business with the distributors. <laughs> Sounds really tacky, but that's what that's honestly what I was thinking. No, honestly, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's it. I think it's even now it's it's pretty good advice, really, if you want to have longevity. Well, no one's going to take you seriously. If you go now, uh, I get people say, oh, I want someone to release my album. And everyone's got an album, you know. Don't know how many new albums does the world need? If you're looking physical, if you're looking physical, um, it's hard to sell. Unless, you know, we're lucky we've got 5,000 fans that will buy our stuff to build on, you know, or something like that. Thank God. Um, so I can still do physical because I love holding it. You know, this, this looking at the sleeve and looking at the work and there's the manifestation of the work. Uh, but if you want to try and go into any of the existing distributors, they're going to say, oh, look, man, sorry. Or, oh, we think it's really good. Give us a hundred. You know, it's that bad, literally, for something trying to embark on it. You somehow got to figure a way of getting people to even notice you um, before you can start going. And we, which gives you the platform of the internet, which is the route a lot of people go. They didn't even care about putting a physical thing out because yeah. it's 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 um, there's more money swilling around the music um, business than ever, but the record business, which is you know thing, it's a very tough world to operate in because you have to have a fan base to be able to manufacture and sell that record, and in my case, a catalogue that you can keep dipping in and out of it and repressing to, to you know, when something um, gets enough demand on quant- you know, quantities to sell it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, 
absolutely. So in that case, yeah, can you just, um, well, one of the things I pulled out of that JD Twitz interview, actually, when you're talking about the kind of economics of doing stuff in, the, in that kind of late 70s, early 80s period. And, you know, you talked about, you know, people are earning 50 quid a week, but it's 300 quid a day in a studio. You might sell a couple of thousand records if you're lucky, but you can sell out a couple of nights at Dingwalls. That's, that's a, a specific example that you, you used in that interview. I mean, people, people talk about how difficult it is to make a living now for music, but I mean, that doesn't sound like an easy option back then either, right? Well, luckily, I worked with Prince Farai, who had a, a, a following, you know, and, and other, other legendary artists, you know, Bim, Prince Hammer, we did a tour. So I, it, working with Prince Farai gave me any credibility to get going and launch us into the live concert thing. I owe him everything on that, you know, because he got us um, the attention and propelled us forward, and he gave me productions of his to release. And then I worked on productions and overdubbed them with him and things, and... That got me going. So we had a little fan base that we could start doing gigs. But the, the, it, it, it was still the same thing now. Was, there were a lot of people in the game then, lots. and it was, But then it was like a record business, really was. But there's so many people p- vying for the um, shopkeeper to buy their wares or to stock their wares. It's, 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 it's pretty similar now because you just got probably load more bods now trying to get noticed. It's just trying to get noticed. Stick your head above the the thing, you know, and get uh, attention. Right, yeah, I guess so the difference is that, you know, in, in the days of record shops, there's literally a finite amount of shelf space, right? So you need to be on that shelf space, whereas now it's like, it's a slightly different thing, which is, um, you know, getting noticed is just that much more, but it's ultimately the same problem of, of getting yourself in front of people. Yes, yeah, completely. But, well, in those days, you know, it was a little store like Baba or Tim at Sound 7 in Dalston, they could take 500 copies of one 7-inch and sell it over a weekend. They, didn't, they wouldn't really want to have their shelves full of, like, one that when they pl- played it, they might sell one copy of or two. They would put, play it and there'd be 10 people sticking their hands up wanting to buy it. You know, that was how it was. Nowadays... The, 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 the business, well, you know, in the old days, if you had a record played on Radio 1, you might have got 60 quid or something, and you might have had 8 million people listening to that record, and it got played a few times a day, and all over the networks, lesser and lesser monies for the smaller the station. You could maybe make, you know, a couple of grand a day for a massive hit record, or a grand or something a day. I don't know the figures, I'm just plucking it out of the air. But now with streaming... There's more money than ever because forget the radio. If there's a big act that has got um, 200 million, 300 million streams, which is, is that's not even big figures compared to a lot of them. It is for me that'd be uh, that'd be a dream come true. But you got you got acts now where you know every day there are like maybe five million people listening to one tune by one act. Well, if you work out that each million streams is worth about $3,000 or whatever it is, or quid or whatever, you know, that could be, you know, 15 grand a day plus being earned by the act. By the old days, being played on Radio 1 and all over the world as a mega hit wouldn't make you anything like that. And that's just, you know, and then other acts are getting, you know, work with the artist Halsey, you know, six billion streams on one tune. That's worth 18 million. You know, these are these are the figures that are there. If 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 you can get um, 
you know, my figures might not be quite accurate, but it's, they're not far off yeah. what they gross. This is what people are aiming for now. You know, it's like streaming, streaming. They're not even thinking about manufacturing a funky little seven inch or something. You know. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a world of difference between the sort of mega successful acts and people who are trying to get started. But you know, as you were saying, and as you know, those the figures I just mentioned suggest, like getting started. 30 or 40 years ago it wasn't it wasn't great then either you know it's never been great trying to start a music career no you just got you've got to basically persevere i mean the thing is if if the the, the hardest thing you know that were well, a very a very good thing is who's a good songwriter and there, i i luckily work with the people like uh jebloy nichols bim sherman um lee stephen kenny lsk you know really you know good songwriters around us and um, Mark Stewart, you know, they're, they're all actually, I love them as songwriters. So we've always had good songs written on, for the label when we did do, uh, not when it wasn't instrumental, when it was vocal, I always tried to make good lyrics. But being a good songwriter, that's what generally leads to, to real mega success. You know, instrumental dubs got its niche and I'm very mm. proud and I'll continue doing whatever I, I want to do. But if you're looking on... Um, success it's really combinations of really good songwriters good performances and capturing the imagination of a public you know yeah to get those yeah, mega absolutely. those mega those mega streaming figures yeah so just going back to your kind of early period as a producer was there a record where you really felt you'd nailed it what was the first point at which you felt you were really nailing probably it? mark stewart's learning to cope with cow this album and that that, that, uh, that album I thought was very complete and a really great piece of work. Which year was that? Um, Roughly. Was it 83, 82, 83? Right, yeah, okay. If you don't know that album, have a listen to it because it's, it's a great album. And it's... And, set, yeah, and, so it, and it still stands up to this day. So. Had there been a change in your approach which got you to that place of, you know, really nailing it? Well, you, when I started, I didn't know what I was doing, really. I just want more reverb, right, yeah. more delay, more, 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 you know. And then as you learn things, and then then sometimes you learn a lot of stuff, then you've got to go through a process of unlearning. You know, it was like with Mark, it was like literally we we taped over the metres on the, on, on the, two in, on the quarter-inch tape we were mixing to. You can't be going saturating two-inch tapes, but you... Um, so we were overdriving, we were like have tubes with microphones playing things down there. Uh, m with Mark, I learned so much about anti-production as well, working with someone like him and Mark's, also Mark Smith from The Fall about not using the effects and keeping it dry. And I started picking up new tricks from s some very, very creative people and um, applying it to the next thing. And then the next thing you learn... You know, you keep learning. If you're working with, with greats, and I've, I've been so blessed to work with absolute musical giants, you know, and... How did you meet Mark Smith? In Rough Trade Shop. Right, yeah. And we got on yeah. well, and um, I was friends with him and Kay Carroll and used to stay up with them and um, used to come and visit me and my wife at the time in um, Kishi in London and... We'd stay with him and I did a few recordings with him and helped him on the, a few tracks and then 
whatever. It was a proper, but it was it was interesting with him because he everybody else was using reverbs, delays, and studio techniques. He wanted it dry and the power of the thing was what it was all about, and the riffs and you know kind of anti-production kazoos and things like that. He's like, you, know, uh, you know, it was proper, but just that approach, I'd not really thought of it like that. And then when I started doing a mix that was really wet, covered in reverb and delays, then you suddenly pull it back to something really dry and then do an e a, a, you know, kind of irritating distortion um, EQ sweep thing through the hats or something and then make it pulse with the reverbs again. It's, uh, I don't know, it's just, it just ideas of how um, not to keep doing... Um, exactly the same i'll just go mad with this or mad with that and control it and hold up a healthy tension by keeping it dry the production that was a uh, the starting point when i started balancing i wanted to make it sound good without one effect and then yeah knowing i could go back to that dry sound and i got a lot of that from uh see seeing mark's insistence on not using um any, the reverbs and delays yeah, so yeah, going back to Rough Trade, you mentioned um, in that interview that I was I keep referring to that uh, like Jeff Travis from Rough Trade initially didn't like the Creation Rebel album, but then after John Peel played it, he changed his mind. Is, is that true? Yeah, it is. But bless him, I don't think you know he had so many, he had <laughs> yeah, so many other enough, things yeah. on his plate at the time, but that's what happened. Yeah, the Richard Scott there was so helpful. Jeff's my mate. I like you know, Jeff's got uh, his ears and what he likes, what he likes. Uh, Richard Scott really was was. I was helping me up there. It, was, it just passed away, rest in peace. The last month, Richard died. He was a, a former manager of Third World, a beautiful man, a lovely man. Yeah. Okay, I wanted to ask about industrial, actually, because you were involved in the a few of the Ministry albums. One album, I, just the first album, just the first album. I really, I, okay. Well, you definitely crop up in some of the other wiki entries for, for those subsequent albums. But um, I mean, I was really into ministry when I was when I was younger. When I was, I mean, it was a slightly later era. I was into the kind of Psalm sixty nine era of of ministry. But I've gone back and kind of become acquainted with the earlier stuff, and it's just it's fucking awesome actually. And also with first nine inch nails album. So tell me about industrial generally and how it fitted in. To the other stuff that you were doing, or how what you'd come well, out. Well, I mean, just people just put a name on something. I think I think yeah. what happened with me, it wasn't. I wasn't particularly into listening to this, that, and the other. I, knew, I was aware. Of, I knew Throbbing Gristle and um, a few, you know, Twenty Three Skidoo and lots of other non-reggae things that were quite edgy and noisy, and with, you know, good ideas going on. But um, I, Mark, we you know we did we did uh, Tackhead, and we and. I got approached by Al to do um, the, the, the the album, and at that, Twitch, Twitch, was the, uh, this is Twitch, album, yeah. Right? yeah. And the album, I just met Keith LeBlanc, and we cut some tunes for Ministry that I ended up swapping with Al. I gave him a couple of things in mind that we worked on, and then the session we ran with Keith became the first Tackhead record. Oh, right. And uh, then when we did Tackhead, and then combining Ministry, Tackhead, then they'd heard The Mafia, Mark Stewart and The Mafia. Then people started saying, oh, Agent Sherwood, industrial, industrial. I never I never thought <laughs> right. of that I was industrial. And then people started saying, oh, would you do 
uh, Nine Inch Nails and Trent used to come to all our gigs and stand next to me on the gigs. I please producers, please producers. And um, I, 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 I was a bit, you know, when he started and then... Hang on a sec. Can I just, let me let me stop you there because I wanted to ask you about doing the, the ministry album in particular because that involved going to America and like there must have been a a bit of a change of scene for you, right? And you were still really young at that point, right? I still am. <laughs> um, of course. No, about that. I was, I was twenty six or something. Oh, okay. Not that young then, right? Okay. But yeah, tell me about yeah. Tell me about it. Tell me about going to the going to Chicago, right? To to record it. We went to Chicago. I got picked up by um, Danny. Whose boyfriend owned Wax Tracks Record at the airport with 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 Al. Then we went to his house, and then we started playing tunes. And he just had a baby, and I just had a baby. His baby was called Adrian, and um, mine was called Denise. And uh, we started working on on the record. And he loved. I was playing in Mark Stewart, which he hadn't heard, and it flipped him out. He loved the the frequencies. I think um, Sire Records, Seymour wanted me to make a kind of version of the um, of Al's dance music meets Depeche Mode or something. So what he got, he was I don't think he was very happy. He hated me, Seymour <laughs> Stein, and um, yeah, that was the story of that album. Were you familiar at all with American dance music that was happening? I mean, Chicago House and that kind of stuff. Were you familiar at all with that stuff? Yeah, I was. I mean, I, four on the floor dance music, although I had a couple of hit records doing it, you know, like Gary Clay and what, whatever mm. else, it, it, I couldn't sit in a room listening boof, 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 right. boof all day long. It used to send me mad, even if it was steppers reggae. I like the stuff with the swing and the more you know, whatever, which is not that commercial because most folk wanted four on the floor and still do dance music on a global level, you know. Uh, I mean, with the Nine Inch Nails, I literally, all I ever did was did a mix for Keith LeBlanc for Down On It. You know, that's all I did. I didn't do anything more than that. Okay, so was, was Keith LeBlanc more involved in that than you? Well, he programmed all the drums. I kept refusing to do the job because I was so busy doing my other stuff. Okay, because I actually, this is funny. I, um, I listened to a long interview with Trent Reznor the other day, coincidentally, and he was talking about that album. And he talks about a unspecified English producer who he he reckons he didn't get on very well with. So would that have been Keith LeBlanc? Uh, no, I can't see. I can't. It, I did not get on with. It, I don't know. I can't see. Can't, no, Keith's American. <laughs> Keith's American. So, oh right, so okay. Or maybe and, maybe it was you then. I don't well, know. no, he didn't. No, he got, I spoke to Trent uh, a couple of years ago. I did a job for him. Okay, I, I was. I've been trying to figure out who this would have been, but I mean, yeah, I've just. Well, no, no, Trent and me, I, I spoke to him and his, his, you know, the English guy he works with the other day, uh, um, but very respectful. You know, I, I did a couple of other mixes for Trent over the years. For nine yeah, yeah, no, that's the thing, because I, I, I know you'd work with him again subsequently, so I didn't think it was you. I never worked with him. I never worked with him together. I mean, what happened was his manager and my manager were the same person, Ros Earls, for oh, a while. Oh, right, OK. And Ros kept saying, oh, Trent wants to work, we're going to do something. And then he was, he, he'd gone and hired, I was going to, and then he'd hired, um, he was living in the house where Sharon Tate had got murdered, and I just thought, oh, this isn't for me, I don't want to go, <laughs> I've got, I've, I'm not interested for a frigging second to go and work with Trent and Marilyn Manson or whoever. That was on the Downward Spiral album, wasn't well, it? Well, I don't remember. I can't, I can't remember. I'm not, but they, they said, oh, look, come and work. And I was going to do it. And then, it, and I said, look, I'm just not comfy with this. I don't like, 
you know, mates, where's Adrian? Oh, he's he's in he's he's with Trent Reznor in the house where, you know, um, the Manson family committed all those atrocities. I just was like, kind of, you know what? This this isn't for me. This ain't for me. Sorry, and that's what that that honestly was um, why I, I didn't work on an, on that that album at that time. Because yeah. I was tempted yeah, to, I, I loved, I loved the sonic he was getting. I loved where he, what, you know, what the the sound was was really exciting. But it, I thought to me, no, this isn't me. No, thank you. I've got other things to do. And and then I ended up doing a couple of things. I did one thing with Mark Stewart, uh, you know, Starfuckers Incorporated, and another thing. But and then he approached me about the Halsey mix because he was producing her. Oh yeah, that was recently, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a couple of years ago. So I, and I spoke, to, I spoke to Attica and him, Atticus and him then. You know. Yeah, but I, I, I um, you know, I would have like I regret not actually doing something in the room with him, you know, together. But um, never say never. But the, the, you know, I can't start taking claim for anything in industrial things. As people approached me, and because I always needed money to prop up the company, I kept doing remixes. You're talking about the label there, right? Prop up the label. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you remixed all kinds of stuff, didn't you? In fact, during that period. No, I did remixes. I always, I, was, I didn't take on a remix unless I thought I could um, improve it, and you know, do something really good. Um, I, the only one I really did, I did a really bad job on. I'm ashamed. I was the Megadeth thing that got caught up, and I was in a really terrible state, and I didn't do a good job for them. But the others, I tried everything I did. I thought it was, you know, what, what it was. A lot of time, it wasn't even the band. It was a record company would say, um, "Oh, we want you to do a mix," you know of this and they were thinking I'll oh, get get six remixes done Gage and Sherwood do the weirdest one we put them all out and they all contributed to the chart position of the act right that's okay. how it worked in those days so you'd see ten mixes and it was just mad marketing things and so much money swilling around because the CD had been invented and all these companies were making literally billions by re um marketing their, their back catalogues on cd and investing the money in in all sorts of foolishness that's what was going on yeah f- yeah actually quite similar to what's happened in the music industry in the last sort of seven or eight years actually because it had this massive injection of streaming money which no one saw coming and suddenly the labels are rich again right so just doing crazy shit right. yeah that's one what was your well w- how did you approach doing remixes in those days like how different was it from your general approach in the studio if, if at all different well no I just I just uh, looked on it as a, a version and then I looked on it as a dub version meets a kind of the sensibilities of the artist that I was working for and I just thought I've got to make it sound quite a lot different to the original otherwise what's the point hmm. and that's uh, that's how I did it in practical terms in those days did you just get the the uh like the the tapes, like the stems on tape. Like, how did it actually work? Yeah, in- they'd send over a multi track, or I'd ask, right, I'd ask it, for, yes. I'd ask for a multi track copy. I would then um, deconstruct it, overdub it, uh, maybe add something to it, and then I would um, rip it to pieces and then edit the best bits together to make a remix. So, I mean, what was your kind of priority? I guess is the question. Um, wondering in, in this kind of a period like we talked about uh you know wanting to make records and you know having to pay the bills and 
that kind of develops over the course of, I guess, of the 80s. And you, know, you talked about getting to a point where you're really confident in what you're doing and thinking you're making really good stuff. But like, what was your major priority by the end of that kind of 1980s period? Well, I, I, I was working with Tackhead and Tackhead was smashing it. It was brilliant. Where these the, the Sugar Hill Gang rhythm section, they were, they were like amazing. And Mark Stewart was on mute. I kept thinking, you know, if we put, put the productions on bigger labels. I, I looked at On You Sound as a production house. I didn't see it like as being, um, you know, I want to make the label massive. I wanted to keep producing things I wanted to do and see them on a big label and see them become successful. Uh, it, uh, so I, I kept thinking everything I was doing was going to sell 10 times more than it did. <laughs> right, okay. That's yeah. the problem. But we never promoted, but we uh, we kept our dignity. I <laughs> know <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I, my aim. I mean, it was literally I kept thinking... Then we had a fluke hit with human nature. It wasn't because of me. It was because Bobby Marshall, who's my dear friend, he... he the manager's Asian Dub Foundation. He's worked with me forever, but Bob uh, got Oakenfold and Steve Osborne to remix it. And we had a fluke hit, which, it, you know, that didn't do as much good, to be honest, um, in, 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 in pulling a sideways kind of thing. But, you know, and then one thing after another, um, I ended up going through a divorce in 90, you know, breakup in uh, 94, and then after that, I was in chaos, to be honest. So the period, you know, that 14 years from 80 to, to 94, it, um, it all kind of just took a different path, really, after that. Sorry, with, with Tackhead, were you touring a lot with that band as well? Yes, yeah. Tell me about that. Like, well, what were you... Um, well, Tackhead, yeah. Tackhead was, was Doug, Skip, Keith and me, and then we, we added Bernard Fowler. Um, and then we were also had Mark Stewart, so it was Tackhead, Stroke, Mark Stewart, and the Muffin. It was like a big, a really intense, great show, you know. And then when it all kind of came to the end in 1990, um, Bernard joined the Rolling Stones, which he's been with ever since, and he became right, of course. I was wondering where I knew that name from, yeah, yeah. okay. And yeah. then uh, Dougie, um, went off to do with Live to do Living Color. Uh, Keith um, did this, that, and the other session, you know, massive sessions, and Skip and me teamed up doing loads of productions and working together. So, you know, uh, yielding little acts and all sorts of uh, really nice productions, you know, Miracle album with Bim Sherman and all sorts of other things. Where are the main, like, where had you toured mostly? Were you doing in the States? Was it? Most of no, we did well. England, if we did England, you know, we'd sell London out in about an hour. Uh, I was tend to play the forum, and then yeah. we'd go to Japan, America, um, Australia, New Zealand, went all over the, the planet, really. And was that like full on tour buses? All that yeah, kind of stuff? well, in those days you, you toured, but um, you know, it wasn't like long tours, it was a week or two. Um, I wasn't into these two, three month tours, I had a family at home, and um. I, 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 you know. I mean, it's a difficult lifestyle, right? It's not one for me, really. I, I, I love doing the gigs. I still do love doing them to this day. But it's you've got to be a real hardcore warrior musician to do what what musicians do. It's a very, it's a very, very demanding life. And 
Yeah, no, it absolutely is. Yeah, and it's um, I don't know. I guess it's kind of a shame, really, that it's become that much more necessary now. I think for for people today, because as you said previously, like prior, this was a record business at its core, and it now feels like it's a touring business at its core. Is that fair? Do you think? Well, it was always touring. You always had to tour, but the old, in the old days, you, you you toured. Record companies would sponsor the tour as part of the promotion budget to sell the record. But the end product was selling huge amounts of something that yielded money per unit. Now it's the other way around. You're looking for making a record and and letting everyone hear it to get your notice so you can go and make money touring. But it's still the same in many ways where, you know, the big acts scoop up most of the money and the little acts are scraping around the bottom trying to get a gig in the few pubs that still put bands on. Yeah, absolutely. So what happened then in that period after 94? I mean, you just kind of like delineated that as a kind of cutoff point. But what happened after that for you? Well, I've gone through periods, you go through periods where you're not, and I wasn't good in myself. I was, I must be honest, I, I wasn't looking after myself. And although we made some great records, you know, I did uh, Echo Deck with Primal Scream and did um, Miracle with Bim Sherman, Wolf at House Built with Little Axe and some other nice records but I, I, I went through quite a period where you then go through a period where people really your stock goes down there's new exciting things you know Jungle was born there was like loads of new movements in things and to a degree I got I don't say I got left behind but I wasn't just was not on it at all and you know I think I made some great records then but not nothing like what before and um it took me quite a long time to kind of regroup myself, to be honest. Yeah, I think that's normal. You know, I think there are kind of cycles in in music. And, you know, I think a big challenge of anyone who's making music and kind of out there is to stay quote unquote relevant, which is a kind of depressing way of putting it. But I mean, yeah, the, the cycle, the wheel does turn, right? And I think basically everyone who's had a long career has a moment where they're like, fuck, this isn't quite what it was. And then, you know, and it's a case of like coming back from that, right? Yeah. You have to, you have to, um, you have to rise again if you, if you want to, you know, but it's, it's, you know, with me, cause I'm not actually a, a musician. Right? It's, it's, you know, working with good people and then, you know, it, it, it the ambience around is, is, is very difficult to, is to put it into words where if, um, everybody, Everybody seems uh, inspired and positive, and it's like you know at the moment the the air around the country is one of like oh god or like there's a you know there's not one of huge optimism and huge belief that you can change the world and great things can happen. We're getting battered by you know um, you know the god awful situation in Palestine and the you know uh, and Yemen and world affairs and everything like that in. And look around our own country, the homelessness, this awful Nazi government, you know, these horrific, pe- the, 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 um, horrific people, you know, in that government. So it's just, like, it's just, uh, the ambience hasn't led to feeling, oh, great, we're going to go out Friday night, let's change the world and whatever. It's probably because of, of my age now, but I, I, um, I'm sure the youngsters don't feel anything like I am because they probably don't even pay attention to the nastiness but those periods I felt in 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 a certain period you know in the late 90s I wasn't really at all on it I've got to be honest and I had to regroup build my, my whole self and everything bit by bit 
um, as I went into the 20, 21st century. Yeah, I wanted to talk basically about like dance music generally and electronic stuff, but also then going into dubstep because obviously you've worked with Pinch and I know you were kind of interested in that stuff. So, I mean, just to go back, I mean, to ask you briefly about Chicago House and you've mentioned Jungle there. Like what, what's been your opinion and your kind of relationship with dance music over over time, you know, since it, since Acid House first happened, and you know, what, what's been your kind of relationship personally with it? Well, a lot of it I was observing because I can't claim that I, um, you know, when I worked with the hip hop crew, I was working with the original, as I was with the Jamaican dance hall and the roots reggae people. We had the original players, you know. When we went into the, um, the you know, the kind of housey dancey scene, we had David Harrow and. Um, people and I'd worked with Steve Beresford in, in in the first things ever getting me involved with dance music. We weren't exactly; it wasn't our thing. Oh, we want to make, you know, club music. I never, I never thought of it. I'm making it. I was more interested in the sonic sound, um, African head charge type things, than I was in Chicago house or something. But then every time I ventured into making club friendly stuff using our sonic, it did very well. When I heard Jungle for the first time, I thought, what is that? You know, I didn't even know if I liked it. And then when yeah. I heard it in in a club, it was like, oh, right, I get it. You know, because I could obviously hear it was like double speed reggae. That's what it sounded like to me. And then I became good friends with Congo Natty and I started really getting, really getting into the excitement of it. And I think that's the thing with anything, real excitement in... Some people are genuinely, genuinely excited by you know, house music, relentless, non-stop house music, I would hear one or two tunes and think, wow, that's an amazing tune. Um, but my relationship with it wasn't one I want, I'm going to venture into, I am going to work today to make a club tune. I never I never planned that. I, but probably very much because I didn't have the characters around that wanted to do that and said, come on, Adrian, come on, let's do this, let's do that. If I applied myself, if I'd worked with you know, some of the great house producers in Chicago. So I'm sure they'll come up with something really good. You know, I, I made a good contribution to the work. Did you get involved in Acid House as a, a raver at all? I used to go down to dungeons on Lee Bridge Road. And I remember the first time t- I ever, well, not the, I remember, you know, very early doors taking um, ecstasy for the first time. And it was just like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. Yeah, that's always a memorable event, right? Oh, it's unbelievable, yeah. And it, it changed society. I mean, you know, that whole movement was inc- very, very important. I used to go to West Ham, all the home games. I lived right next to the stadium and there was lots of Aggie racism, violence and, you know, from lots of teams. It was, And then that was East London. And then um, when we used to go to dungeons, it was full of, like, football fans... Um, previously, you know, a West Ham lot, all cuddling each other and smiling and happy, and it literally, I, I, I you know, I think it played a major part in um, in redefining all that. You know, it really did. Yeah, yeah. I had a guy called Gerald on the show actually a few months ago, and we talked about that whole stuff, and he, he really. Uh, yeah, confirmed what I mean. It's it's kind of a legend and almost a cliche at this point, but I mean, according to him, and obviously according to you too, it's absolutely accurate the effect that it had on society. I witnessed it firsthand. You, know, you go to the club and and um, the bouncers were gentler. The 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 um, the whole ambience in there was no 
you know, you know, the only problem was when uh, people were trying to police the drug dealing, you know, and people getting aggy and some some like, you know, some things like that went on. But the crowd itself and the and the change of uh, ambience and the whole of the society amongst that age, you know, the age group that uh, were going to those clubs and the the the, the former. The people, who, you know, they should have just given that to everybody going to the ground who had an attitude and uh, yeah. seeing people cuddly. Literally, honestly, it was it was amazing. I was just grinning ear to ear. And, you know, the best club we went to anyway uh, was was called Dungeons on the Lee Bridge Road. It was like amazing. So, do you remember which DJs you saw there? Well, I saw all the DJs over the years at various other events, but um, I can't remember the, the Acid House DJs at Dungeons. I could, I could find out for you. I just make one phone call, and yeah, Leo, Leo yeah. would remember everybody. So, yeah, dubstep. I was um, was going to be the last thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, well, I, as I as mentioned, like, I know you work with Pinch and stuff, but like, what was your um, feeling about it when you first? Kind of heard it or heard about it. What do you think when you heard about this dubstep stuff? Well, I started hearing things like Horsepower and other people who've been who'd, who'd done things, and I first yeah. heard it in a rehearsal room on a, on a on a PA, and I, I I kind of thought I was I was like, you can know when something's good when you feel. I don't even the word jealousy is not it's not jealous, but you think, God, I wish I'd been involved in that. That is yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it isn't me being jealous of their thing. Um. It's being inspired, I think, when because it's the kind of thing like you hear something, it's like, oh, I've got to get in the studio and make something. Now, well, you know, well, so well kind of... I didn't know anybody who was doing it at the time, but but blown away was the word. I was like, wow, this is this is like fantastic, you know, and all those tunes like "Where's My Money" and all that. <laughs> it was just like kind of Jesus, that is fantastic. And um, I met Pinch, and uh, we, we just we we what we did together, I was very proud of, and I think it's still wonderful records, but. I think we fell a little bit between it wasn't enough dubstep or enough mice kind of area to satisfy everybody. Mm. But there's a number of people who actually totally love those two albums so much. It's ridiculous. But hey, I, um, no, I mean, those movements all, all coming from originally the dance halls of Kingston, Jamaica in the 60s and the Lee Perry, Keith Hudson, King Tubby influenced productions and you know it, it, the, the Jamaican saying each one teach one's pro- proven there because that's that's its development yeah I mean that's a completely and a very direct result of what we were talking about all right at the start almost it's just the influence of people coming in to the UK and influencing the UK music scene right you know people come from different parts of the world totally, and, absolutely totally yeah so okay very last question is Damon Alban, a nice bloke. Um, very, very good question. Hang on a second. Let me take this call. One sec. I would say Damon Alborn is what is the most um, competitive person I've ever come across, and he's very talented. Down to being nice, I'm sure his, his mum loves him. <laughs> I like, I like, I liked him as well. He was actually very kind to me, and I, I like him. <laughs> nice one. Well, listen, Adrian. Thanks for your time today, mate. It's been been great. Really enjoyed it. Cheers, Paul. We might speak later. Bye. Yeah, as I mentioned at the top, that was a slightly truncated conversation. He had to run off and take a call. Normally, I like going longer than that, as you will be aware. But we got some good stuff out of him. Nonetheless, I could easily have 
gone through everything in much more detail. I knew there was a limited time period, which is kind of explains my line of questioning and the fact that I was willing to move on from things probably more readily than I would normally be. But yeah, what a legendary career. I mean, I didn't even know he worked with uh, Nine Inch Nails until quite recently. I mean, yeah, he didn't like being asked those questions that much. I got the impression, but... <laughs> Maybe I was being a little bit obtuse. I have to say, if you're going to listen to a podcast, listen to Trent Reznor's appearance on Rip Rubin's podcast. That is a really interesting talk. Highly recommended. Okay, that's about it for this week. Shorter than usual. Reminder about the pledge drive. Remember, if you're British, you should stop being so tight and support the podcasts that you listen to. I'm just joking, of course, but... um, it would be nice of you to do so. It genuinely would. If you're not going to do that, as mentioned, no problem. Leave us a review or a rating and follow the show. That's the most important thing. Hit follow wherever you're listening to this podcast. Also follow the Spotify playlist and come into the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. Join us there to yeah discuss what's going on. And I will see you back here same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Not a dieting podcast, let's go. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.